Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon, and here today, Arnaldo's written. Last script that Arnaldo wrote for us was The White Uno Gang, which uh, everyone was like, ooh, a heist one. So, I mean, those ones always get less views, because <laughs> as I said before, you sickos. Um, but I had just recorded this, like, really rough episode, and I was like, oh, it's nice. It's going to be less about, you know, murdering someone's family, and more about just, like, generic violent crime. <laughs> is better than when someone's whole family gets murdered which is a weird thing to say but uh and then within a few pages it's like oh and then they just started randomly killing people i'm like arnaldo i thought this was going to be a mental break for me of course not uh today we have king kong the rise and fall of boris the first the swindler king of andorra uh so this one is going to be about cons i love cons i mean i love conning people no, I love, uh, like, Catch Me If You Can is such an epic movie. I, I don't know, there's like this, uh, of all the rogues, you know, like, pirates and all of this stuff, the con man is like, I find that very interesting. And I'm sure if I got conned, I'd be like, this sucks, con men are dicks. But there's something, it's probably just because, you know, it's a great movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, isn't it? But how he pretends to be a pilot, which I'm sure is extremely dangerous, and a doctor, which again, extremely dangerous, and a lawyer... You know, again, well, not dangerous, but, you know, you're messing around with people's freedom and such. Um, anyway, what am I talking about? This is a really long introduction. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I recorded a really violent one yesterday. I'm not sure what order this will come out in, but someone's, again, someone's whole family was murdered, which was, uh, which was great. <laughs> really makes for a nice day. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm quite happy to have a little break, it must be said, and talk about some cons, some rogues. Thank you, Arnaldo. Uh, as I said, Arnaldo writes it. If you're new here, I've never read this before. Uh, we go on this little adventure together. Uh, it's called Cold Read, which is also that weird thing that mystics do. <laughs> or like uh, sight reading, I think is another way of putting it. Anyway, and then afterwards, Jen, if you're watching this video on YouTube, hello there, you can see my face. Uh, she'll add some graphics and some images and stuff. If you're listening, of course, you get the sounds, the music, the soundscape. Let's just jump in, shall we? Somewhere in Europe, 1933. Oh, <laughs> shit is about to get real in Europe. People are probably thinking like, oh, we just had a big war. Everything's going to be pretty chill for a while. <laughs> Guess what happened in 1933? Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. Morning has just dawned. She, she is still in bed, her unkempt hair caressing the pillow. Oh my. A ray of sun gently kisses her cheek. Are we ever, Is this a romance novel today? <laughs> Florence is truly... It is! She's irresistible! What could he do without her by her side? By his side, everything about her makes him happy. Her vitality, her beauty, her figure, and the figures in her bank statements. Oh my god. I am having a good time so far. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. But this is just a detail. The cherry on top. He would love to spend more time with her, but he has business to do. Besides, Phyllis is waiting for him, sprawled on another bed in another hotel the baron slides from underneath the sheets and gets ready for the day <laughs> this guy he's not a baron is he he's our con man i can already tell a perfect shave a touch of brillantine in his dark hair an elegantly knotted cravat and for the final touches a well-polished monocle and a walking cane with a silver handle <laughs> desirable fashion back in the day was weird it's like this guy is like he's the leonardo dicaprio of this story and he's like what'll look good shiny ass monocle cravat and a walking stick mm-hmm 
The man walks slowly and confidently through the cobbled streets of the capital, looking around this tiny city. Others may only see urban center, the urban center of a small, insignificant, and backwards country but not the baron. He perceives the beauty of these valleys, the winds of change finally blowing through them. Most of all, he sees potential. He cannot help but think aloud in his native Russian. Yes, he mutters, I like this country. I am going to take it. Okay. This, I mean, that's bold. Stealing a country. Who's that guy? We, I made a biographics video about him, or a today I found out there's this guy called Gregor McGregor. Uh, he was like a Scottish guy, or maybe he was American, or whatever. And he basically just pretended to be some like uh, noble royal family dude from the UK who went over to the New World, and he was just selling people plots of land in a country that didn't exist. <laughs> it's like legend. But also, if I got conned by him, I'd be like, "You're such a dick, Gregor." Setting the stage. I would like to introduce you to today's protagonist, Boris Skostyarev, who went down in history as the alleged baron, alleged spy, and confirmed swindler, who in 1934 managed to pull the Con of Kongs, becoming the king of a country, the micronation of Andorra. Boris could have been, I think I made a geographics video about Andorra. Yes, you did! Yes, you! It's this random country that's like between Spain and France. And if I'm not mistaken, and I know people will be like, Simon, you made a video about this. How do you not remember? And I'm always like, well, bro, do you not know how many videos I make? So it's literally in the eyes and out the mouth sometimes. But uh, I remember it being that the king of France or the president of France, Macaroon, Macron, he, uh, he rules it for one year and then the king of Spain rules it for another year or something. Does king, Spain still have a king? It does. Is his name Ferdinand? Oh, God. <laughs> I have no idea. It's embarrassing. Ah. Uh, yeah, and they rule it, so they alternate the years for some reason, or something weird like that. This isn't the Geographics channel, just get on with the script, tell the story, fact boy, come on. Boris could have been born from the imagination of Herge, the artist who created Tintin, or maybe he could have been a character straight out of a movie by Wes Anderson, the filmmaker who gave us Grand Budapest Hotel and the Royal Tenenbaums. Wes Anderson, I greatly enjoy. It's so, what's, I saw, I can't believe I hadn't seen it, because I really enjoy his, uh, like, I don't know, Royal Tenenbaums. Oh my god, the one where they're on the train. How can I not remember this? Uh, the royal, the, 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 everyone is yelling this at their screens or, uh, phones right now. Ah! The Darjeeling, the Darjeeling Limited. Great movie. And then I went back and I watched that one, um, Rushmore. So good! <laughs> Even better, Boris could be a character from the Tintin adaptation that Wes Anderson sorely owes us. But the truth is that Boris Skosyev could have been born out of the imagination of just one man. Boris Skosyev himself. But I can perceive your confusion, so let's proceed with some kind of rationality, even though this whole story has little to offer in that department. If this was the treatment for a movie, which it's not, and if I were a lazy writer, which I am, at this stage it would be very convenient to introduce a totally made-up character to lay, some lay out some exposition to help the audience with some context. Oh, but aren't we lucky? There she is, just walking through the town square, Mrs. Blanca de la Exposition. Garcia, elected best tour guide in Andorra, 1933. I am a little confused. Is Arnaldo going to introduce us to this guy through a fictional character? For a factual channel, we are taking a dive today. I mean, like, into things, not a dive in quality-wise. I'm loving it. Well done, Simon. Praising yourself there. Good job. 
And how convenient. She is accompanied by some English tourists so we can understand their conversation. The older gentleman, Colonel Mustard, asks, Pray thee, madam, would you care to expound on the peculiar system of government of this here fair land? My travel companion, Professor Plum, hasn't quite grasped it, for he be an idiot. Why, sure, gentlemen, perhaps now that you are sober, you shall pay some attention. Though, Blanc, through Blanca's explanation, we would learn that Andorra is a micronation covering a surface of just 468 square kilometers or 120 square miles. It's nestled in an idyllic valley above the Pyrenees Mountains on the border between Spain and France. <laughs> I remember all of this. Its capital, the only major city, is Andorra la Vella. Why am I doing an Italian accent? It is between Spain and France. <laughs> And I'm sorry, Arnaldo. <laughs> Arnaldo's Italian. <laughs> Probably really offending him with my terrible accent. And in the early 1930s, the entire state counted only 4,000 inhabitants living in a largely feudal society based on cattle herding. The tiny nation was first declared independent by none other than Emperor Charles the Great or Charlemagne. And everyone's like, Simon, it's Charlemagne. I'm like, okay, that's how you pronounce it. Charmaine is also an accepted and indeed probably the more correct pronunciation. You're welcome. Just because, who's, isn't there a singer or a... There's some dude called Charmaine the God. I don't know who he is, um, but I think I, I've seen him on... Was he on Joe Rogan's podcast? I saw it on like a YouTube clip or something like that. And, uh, I, but what, let's just move on. Let's just move on because I just have to address it. All the comments are going to be like, ah, Charmaine. He doesn't know how to pronounce Charlemagne. Good lord. He needed a buffer state between his Frankish kingdom and the Muslim-controlled Spain to the south. Well, madam, would cry the colonel, I call bovine excrements on this statement. If Andorra has 4,000 citizens now, surely it has less than 1,000 back in the 9th century. Not really much of a buffer state, was it? The act tour guide Blanc would have to admit that the whole Charmaine thing is probably legends, but one that Andorans like to believe. Now, if you'll allow me to continue. <laughs> the guy, you gotta be such a dick to be on like a tour. Like, you get taken a tour around the city, you know, they're like, and here, this is the 16th century chapel of St. Mary. And you're like, actually, that chapel was built in 1632. It's a common misconception that it was built in 1633. Ah, ah. If I were the tour guide, I'd be like, fascinating. <laughs> you dick. Now, if you'll allow me to continue, the story goes that Charles's grandson conceded control over the Andorran Valleys to the Counts of Urgell in today's Catalonia in northern Spain. In 1133, the count sold the rights to exploit the valleys to the local bishop. So the bishops of Ergo collected taxes over harvests and herds, but they needed some muscle to defend the Andorran valleys. This muscle came from the Cabue family. And I'm so sorry about all of these pronunciations. Uh, I, I just don't know with those. But okay. In exchange for their services, the bishops granted them formal ownership of Andorra. By 1257, the ownership rights were inherited by a French aristocrat, Count Roger Bernard de Foix. Oh, sorry, Fouar. Fouar. But this formidable lord was still expected to pay taxes to the Bishop of Urgell, to which he replied, No! Which is French for no. <laughs> The dispute between the count and the bishop was settled only in 1278 when the Lord of Aragon stepped in. He forced the two parties to sign two treaties known as the First and Second Act Parage. These treaties established a unique form of government which makes Andorra the only co-principality in the world. To clarify, and this is the thing about the French and the Spanish ruling it in alternate years, or alternate however many years, 
let's go. The count and the bishop would both be princes or rulers of Andorra. They would take turns to administer the country, each turn lasting one year. Neither of them would live inside Andorra's boundaries, rather they would each appoint a vicar to rule in their stead. On the French side, the right to rule Andorra was transferred to the Count de Foix, to the king, uh, from the Count de Foix to the King of Navarre, then to the King of France, and finally to the President of the French Republic. Although this lineage is disputed by the Orléans family, being the current Dukes of Geese, they claim to be direct descendants of the Counts of Foa and legitimate heirs of the thrones of France, should the monarchy be restored, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like, yeah, good luck with that one. But France has a bit of, France has a, bit of a reputation for restoring the monarchy, doesn't it? <laughs> It's like one day they're like, yeah, Macron, we're done with you. We want to go back to uh, to monarchy. And they'll be like, I don't know, all some crazy shit goes down in France. It's great. <laughs> they'll be like Napoleon Seventh. Does Napoleon have a bloodline today? Because his family also have a bit of a reputation for coming back to France and being like, hey, guess he's in charge now. Napoleon, the next one. On the Spanish side, things are less complicated. The co-prince is still the current Bishop of Urgel, and our excellent Mrs. Exposition would have to admit that after that, Andorran society and politics did not evolve much for centuries. The societal structure remained feudal, and lords and locals did not have the right to freely exploit their natural resources, which were still controlled by the two princes. Only recently, modern modernity finally landed in the valleys above the Pyrenees. A series of strikes had erupted into a popular uprising in July of this very year. 1933. This revolution introduced an electoral reform, granting the right to vote for all males aged 25 or over. The following elections installed a local government, the General Council, which gave Andorans the power to use their own natural resources. But Spanish bishop Giusti Gearart, Gitart, Giusti Gitart, he barely took notice, but the French president Albert Le Lebrun. Barely, uh, he dispatched a detachment of French gendarmes to restore order. Luckily, they left this very October, but who knows what the future holds. Wait. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm like, wait, they just left? I thought we were in the past, and then I'm realizing it's the, the, the contemporary explanation from the tour guide to our, like, uh, Cluedo characters. Sorry. So, oh yeah, and the future holds, I guess it's a, a joke about Europe, is about to explode. <laughs> I dare say, Professor Plumwood uttered, that Andorra is in dire need of a saviour, someone with a plan who could drive social and democratic reforms, thus pulling away this valley from the cone of shadow cast by its more powerful neighbours. At that point, our trio of talking encyclopedia entries would notice the Baron casually strolling into a cafe. <laughs> that guy! He should be king! Pray thee, madam, who is that curious character? No offense, but his elegant demeanor seems oddly out of place. And that's a lesson for everybody. Always dress good, because you might just be in some random country and they'll appoint you king. They'll be like, that guy, sharp dressed, probably smart, make him king. He'll drive those democratic reforms. None taken would graciously concede Blanca. That man is Baron Boris Skosreff, a white Russian aristocrat who has moved here some weeks ago. Allow me to introduce you to him. Introducing Boris. We're now inside the cafe, sitting at the table with the tourists and Skosyev. As they down chalices of the local fine red wine, the impeccable aristocrat is happy to recount his life story. And now, via a series of flashbacks, we're given a glimpse into the confusing past of our protagonist. Good lord, Ronaldo. Are we explaining Andorra through a fictional tour guide taking around two fictional people in Andorra in 1933 and then we're introducing our main character today by in that fictional story having flashbacks that are real 
of the character Boris. I mean, I'm following along, but I feel like I'm at the edge of my mental capacity here. <laughs> Boris Skostryev was born on the 12th of June 1896 from Russian parents in Vilnius, today the capital of Lithuania, back then part of the Tsarist Empire. Or at least that's what we believe. The problem with Skostryev and similar characters within the Brethren of Swindlers is that they are both protagonists and the narrators of their own life story. I mean, I get this is another thing like what's what is like not appealing because it's like i have no desire to go off and be a con man but the idea that it's like you just decide what you want your life to be and you just choose to be that person and then i'm like it's kind of like the ultimate fake it till you make it isn't it it's like who are you no one my life's boring i'm just gonna go somewhere where no one knows my name and pretend to be a baron (laughs) get invited to cool parties marry someone rich (laughs) it's like okay it's kind of crazy it really sounds like I admire it, but I don't. It's just fascinating, and I admire the balls of it. So, we will have to... Narrators which are notoriously unreliable. So, we'll have to piece together the events of his life by using scattered sources, conflicting reports, um, and a healthy pinch of salt. Little is known about his background. He claimed to be a member of the minor Russian aristocracy and styled himself as Baron, but there's no evidence he was actually a nobleman. According to the man himself, he served in World War I as an officer, but according to other sources, he only trained for two months as a junior officer before being kicked out of training. Whatever his military career, when the 1917 October Revolution came along, Boris experienced some serious trouble. Bolsheviks and Barons, <laughs> they didn't really get along, and so Boris, his dad, and three uncles were all imprisoned. The four old men were all killed by the communists, but the young Skostryev managed to escape thanks to an unidentified friend. The self-proclaimed Baron then reached the Western Front, where he acted as a liaison officer and translator for the British Royal Naval Air Service Armoured Cars Unit. In another account, he performed the same job, only not in France. The British unit had been dispatched to Russia to support the White Russians against the Bolsheviks in the early stage of the Civil War. It was on this occasion that Boris joined them to get back at the hated communists. Wherever he may have served, in early 1919, Boris settled in London, starting a prolific career as a conman and general purveyor of bullshit to whoever was willing to lend an ear. In January of 1919, he was first arrested on charges of forging checks, which he used to pay for his stays at five-star hotels. It's like, it is like, um, catch me if you can, isn't it? Wait, so is he actually a baron, or is this whole story... Did Is he actually a swindling baron, or is he just a random Russian peasant? I bet he's just a random Russian peasant, and I think the whole backstory's bullshit. I don't know if we'll probably never find out, will we? It's not like you just go on Google and check this guy's, like, records. It was back in the day. There probably weren't records. And I imagine, like, you know, weren't there, there were two Russian revolutions, like, really close to each other. I'm going to guess, like, a lot of records got destroyed. <laughs> Just, and then communism, of course. They had lots of records. They probably swamped all of the records that were previously there. On this first occasion, he got away scot-free as, again, some mysterious friends stepped forward to clear the balance. But he did not lose the habit of writing bad checks and was later expelled from the country. Boris, I feel like that's quite a good result. It's like, if you're a foreigner, you go to some random country, you write a bunch of bad checks, live in a five-star hotel. I feel like it'd be like, well, you're staying here a lot longer than you expected because now you're going to prison. And they'd just be like, no, get out of our country. <laughs> As this Boris dude, I'd be like, okay, thanks, are you sure? I can just leave? Boris's movements between 1919 and the early 1930s are a bit unclear. He claims that he worked as a spy in the Netherlands that the grateful Dutch royal family had awarded him the title Count of Orange. I feel like I should just make up my own backstory that's more interesting than my regular life. Be like, yeah, no, I was in wars. I was a spy. I was a spaceman. 
<laughs> I mean, obviously, it's more difficult these days because people will be like, that's provably false. But in, back in the day, people were like, pretty convincing, isn't he? Guess he was. What are we going to do? Write to the Netherlands and see if there's this Count of Orange malarkey? What is certain is that he acquired somehow a Dutch passport, with which he may have traveled to Colombia. On the 21st of March 1931, he married one Marie-Louise Perret Peratz, Peratz? Uh, who he immediately proceeded to cheat on. First with a beautiful young Englishwoman named Phyllis Hurd, then with an American millionaire de Fossey, Florence Marmon. In 1932, Florence and Boris and Florence were living in Palma de Mallorca, Balearic Islands. His official occupation was Professor of English and Physical Culture, which I guess is an old-fashioned term for P.E. He But he most likely got up to no good again, as a degree of expulsion was issued against him. Then sometime in 1933, the self-styled Baron Scotsref entered Andorra with both of his lovers, Florence and Phyllis. Okay. He took great care to have them lodge in two separate hotels, and then chose a suitably aristocratic residence for himself, a beautiful villa, the House of the Russians, in the village of Santa Coloma. Bankrolled by Florence, Boris charmed his way into Andorran society. He strutted like a peacock around mountain paths and cafes, clad in fine tailored suits, monocle, and walking cane. He sweet-talked members of, the local, of local high society, boasting about his connections with the Russian, Dutch, and French aristocracy. He garnered the sympathy of the lower rungs of the social ladder with his modern and democratic ideals. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. Yo, if you're, if, if you're extremely likable and obviously really good-looking because he's got two different rich lovers, um, it's probably going to help you in your, in your conning career. I mean, if you're, like, not charming and likable and you're ugly it's gonna be more difficult to be a con man isn't it or con woman it's got to be e i want to say it's easier to be a con woman and i'm not sure if that's is i don't think that's sexist because it's easier to be a con woman because men are stupid <laughs> maybe it's sexist against men but it's like men i feel like men are like it's like a beautiful woman could way more easily manipulate a man than a beautiful man could manipulate a woman. Right? <laughs> I feel like that's true. So I feel... But then also in movies, all the con men are, all, like, most often men. Right? Or have I just seen Catch Me If You Can, like, 17 times? And that's making up all the numbers in my head. But it's got to be easier to be a con woman rather than a con man. Fascinating tangent, Simon. Let's move on. Gradually, he laid out his plans to whoever was willing to share a drink with him. He claims that the French presidency held no right over the co-principality. The real pretender to that title on the French side was Jean d'Orléans, Duke of Guise. As I like that this Guise place is pronounced Guise. It sounds like some sort of king of geese. And as we have, as we learned earlier, Jean considered himself to be the rightful heir to the old Counts de Foix and is still a pretender to the French throne. It's questionable whether Boris had ever met. Oh, I'm so stupid. Earlier on when I was saying there could be like some, these guys wanted to take back the French, French throne. Dude, the, the timeline of today's episode is a little bit confusing, but obviously that was in 1933, not present day. So I guess there's not these dudes still around being like, yo, we should be king. Maybe like. France doesn't have a king, does it? <laughs> I mean, it didn't back then, but it definitely doesn't now. It's been longer. I mean, I'm not saying the French couldn't have a king again. I mean, time's really long. They probably could. It's questionable whether Boris had even ever met the Duke, but he assured Andorans uh, that the Duke and him were good pals. So good, in fact, that the Duke had granted him the right to assume the Andorran throne 
in his stead. And if the Andorans backed his claim, he would enact a series of reforms to finally propel the country into modernity. His key selling point was to turn the tiny impoverished nation into a new Monaco, a tax haven rife with casinos and flush with cash. Moreover, if Andorans were to elect him their king, he would ensure complete autonomy from those meddlesome co-princes in Paris and Urgell. According to some accounts of Boris's adventure, citizens of Andorans glug of Andorra glug down his proposals like a chalice of fine vintage from the Casabio vineyards. Yeah, of course they did, because he was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm here to be king. The old kings suck, they're never here, and guess what? If you make me king, we're all gonna be rich and not pay any tax. I like this guy, I have no idea how any of this is gonna work. It's like populism, isn't it? It's like old school populism. Our imaginary friends Blanca, Mustard and Plum have also emptied their glasses. As we thank them for their services, we can concentrate on our protagonist. Will he, or will he not, succeed in his takeover plans? I love how he's just went there and he's like, yeah, 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 no, I'm supposed to be king. This guy told me I was gonna be king. I'm here to be king. Do you have any evidence to back that up? Nope. <laughs> Nothing. But I'm very, very likable. And I have great policies. Now, just before we continue with today's podcast, let me give a quick shout out to today's fantastic sponsor, FitBod. Look, it's the beginning of a new year, so there's never been a better time to get back into shape. Yeah, make that resolution. Mm-mm, but you've got to stick to it. That's the key. And things like FitBod can really help with that. They've got an innovative algorithm that learns about your goals and training abilities and crafts a personalized training regimen that's unique to you. Start the year off right, you still can. I know we're just slipping outside of January, but you can still get 25% off a FitBod membership, which is a great, uh, kind of great way to stick with that New Year's resolution. Even if you haven't been up to it so far. Look, I've been pretty bad. I was like, let's just, let's just be a bit healthier this year, and I haven't been great at it, but I will get better. What's nice about FitBot is it isn't about comparing yourself to others. I don't know, it's easy to look on at people and be like, you know, yeah, should work out and look like that, shouldn't I? But then you don't. But that's that's kind of that negative motivation. FitBot doesn't work like that. They create a dynamic fitness plan that works just for you so that it actually works rather than just being like, I should look like that guy. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You'll have access to your personal routine on their easy-to-use mobile app so you can just start making progress on your goals any time. Now, I've, I've at various times in my life, I've been healthy, I've been unhealthy, but this is just a great way to uh, kind of start leaning towards the healthier side of things and having that little bit of extra motivation, having a plan. Oh my God, it's mega important for actually achieving this sort of stuff. Fitboard also integrates with your smartwatch, Apple Watch, Wear OS smartwatch. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know what an Apple Watch is, and uh, other stuff like that. Personalized training can be tough on a budget, but Fitbot's only twelve ninety nine a month, or seventeen ninety nine, or or seventy nine ninety nine dollars for the whole year. But if you sign up now, you get twenty five percent off your membership. So twenty five percent off your membership. Go to fitbot.me/casual. Again, fitbot.me/casual. And now back to today's podcast. The King's Move. 1933 was coming to an end, and it was about time for Boris to make his move, although he was due for a major setback. Now, according to Boris himself, authorities had been so enthralled by his plans that they granted him Andorran citizenship in December 1933, but this part of the story is likely cooked up by Boris himself. In fact, most newspaper articles of the time report how on May 22, 1934, Skosyarev had presented to the local government, the General Council, a document formalizing his plans, but local law forbade foreigners from meddling in Andorran politics, which is kind of weird because your country's like 
co a co-principality where it's literally governed by two foreigners. Uh, Boris and his two lovers were subsequently booted out of the country. If he were truly a citizen, he wouldn't have been kicked out, wouldn't he? The de-exiled trickster then relocated to the Hotel Mondial in the Catalonian town of La Suda Aguel, just south of the Andorran border. To avoid confusion, I should specify that this town is a different town than the already mentioned Aguel, which is further south. <laughs> yeah, because today's video couldn't be any more confusing. <laughs> From his new headquarters, Boris made contact with the British, French, and Spanish newspapers, claiming that he had full backing of the Duke of Guise and his supporters, the so-called legitimists who adv advocated a restoration of the French monarchy. A French press agency reported that Skosyev had offered a large sum of money to the General Council in order to be made King of Andorra. The money had come from the legitimists' pockets, it appeared, but it is also likely that the cash came from the bank accounts of the smitten Florence, uh, always supportive of her man. Oh my god, she must have been rich if she had enough money that she could realistically think it would be enough to make her boyfriend king of a small but still a country whatever the source of what was essentially a big fat bribe it did have some serious consequences which unraveled during the eventful day of 1934. on the 6th skosyev proclaimed himself king of andorra or more precisely boris i prince of the valleys of andorra count of orange and baron of skosyev regent for his majesty the king of france sovereign of andorra and defender of the faith he's already starting off with this uh what's it called like uh not blustery but like uh boastful like elaborate super elaborate long dictator style titles between the 7th and 10th of the month the general council ratified this auto proclamation with two subsequent votes out of the 24 councillors 23 voted in favor and dora's formally declared a monarchy ceasing to be the rather confusing co-principality that it had been so far that's so crazy i can't believe this actually worked <laughs> Can't believe this actually worked. On the 12th of July, Boris I triumphantly installed himself in his official residence of Casa de la Val in the capital city of Andorra la Vella. How? I mean, I get that he's got good policies, but you can't just be like, you go on holiday to some small country and be like, this place is a bit shit, isn't it? It's not very well run. I could do a better job. Here's some policies. Here's some money. And now you're king. I mean, okay. The monocled monarch clearly did not faff about. In a matter of few days, he displayed a productivity level to rival only that of Simon Whistler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm pretty productive. I do believe, like, just crack on, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of impressed. He made himself king really quick. All I've done is made a bunch of YouTube channels. Kind of disappointed in myself now. In no particular order, he pledged his allegiance to the Duke of Guise, aka the true King of France, dissolved the General Council, appointed a new provisional government, and issued a new constitution. This legal text contained only 17 articles, the longest being shorter than 30 words, but this Twitter friendly charter was enough to light the torch of modernity on the ancient ways of the valley. As Boris had promised, he declared Andorra a tax haven with the intention of attracting foreign investment and the establishment of casinos. He proclaimed freedom of politics, religious beliefs, and opinion. He issued social welfare programs to protect his poorest citizens and promised to allocate funds to promote education and sports. This is the most popular shit ever. It's like, yeah, if this doesn't work, how are you going to pay for anything? If people are just going to randomly go to some random casino, spend money, and be like, that'll pay for everything, is that going to work? Uh, finally, he declared a general amnesty and planned general elections to be held on the 1st of August. It was a climactic set of reforms, one that was sure to attract the attention of the two co-princes. North of the Pyrenees, the action can best be described as meh, or in French, bof. There we go, I learned something new today. 
In other words, the French president Albert Lebrun tactically accepted or more tacitly accepted or more likely completely ignored the events taking place in Andorra, which was surprising considering that he had dispatched a battalion of gendarmes just a few months earlier. South of the Pyrenees in Spain, it was a different story. Remember one single councillor had voted against Boris? That same guy traveled to Urgell to meet up with His Excellency the Bishop, Justy Justy Giart. The bishop was fuming. How did this sketchy character dare turn his idyllic valley into a haven for gamblers? His excellency believed that casinos were but the waiting room to hell. The bishop was about to move some useful pawns, and together they would move on to checkmate the king. The bishop's move. First, he mobilized the press, issuing a release in which he stated that Boris's proclamation was unlawful. Guitar's declaration irked Boris I, who, in response, immediately declared war. Not on Spain, mind you, neither on Urgell, but on the person of the bishop. <laughs> Holy shit. It's like when a country has declared war on you as an individual, even if it's a small country. Wait, do they even have a military? What are they going to do about this? A fun fact here, during World War One, Andorra had declared war on Germany, sending a total of zero troops to the Western Front. Okay, so zero. After the armistice, the signatories of the Peace of Versailles completely forgot about Andorra. Formerly, the tiny nation was still at war with Germany. Therefore, for a span of a few days, Andorra was technically fighting a war on two fronts. Guitar was not intimidated and called upon the Spanish government to intervene. At the time, the Prime Minister was Ricardo Samba, as a member of the radical Republican Party. <laughs> Quite radical Republicans. It's like, get rid of the king now! And he's prime minister? How did they slev a king? Samba had no sympathy for monarchs, and he agreed to help the bishop. What followed is not entirely clear, as sources do not agree on some important details. According to one version of events, around the 20th or the 21st of July, King Boris I was not in Andorra. Rather, he was lounging in his bathrobe, enjoying tea at the Hotel Mundial in La Soda-Urgel, Spanish territory. This is when a squad of five Spanish policemen barged in and seized him under the newly approved Law of Vagabonds and Malfactors. This law sanctioned the arrest of people with no clear occupation or residence, people like the homeless, nomadic Romani people, or pimps. Okay, um, it's a bit of, that's a bit of a ridiculous law. Again, I made this not a joke, but I made this comment in a previous Casual Criminalist episode. It's like, yeah, great solution for dealing with the homeless people. Just make homelessness illegal. Why not just make it being poor illegal or sick illegal at the same time? I mean, that's that that'll fix it. Won't it? The Republican newspaper Luz had a field day screaming from its headlines, At last, law of vagabonds to be applied to a king. In their cartoon depicting the events, Boris is portrayed in full imperial regalia, Freddie Mercury style, as he's shackled to two mustachioed cops. And in closing here, said cartoon, Ooh, copyright may not allow Jen to show it on screen. Yeah, Jen, don't do that. I don't want to get in trouble. Wait, how old is this? It's super old. Look, look, look. Hold on. We'll do it in a second. Copyright main gen screen, but at least Simon can lay his eyes on this. Let us know his impressions. Look, if there is anything more fair use than this, me holding up a cartoon on screen so that we can all appreciate it. Look, it's just a king and he's being dragged away by two bodyguards. All right. If I get a copyright strike for this, that's insane. <laughs> You're an insane person. Uh, I think that's basically impossible because this is so old. But if I do, it'll be a fun story to tell in the future, won't it? My legal battles. <laughs> we'll have to do the casual civilist, where I go <laughs> tell details of my civil offences. Copyright infringement of ancient cartoons. One interesting detail in the cartoon is a street sign in the top right corner of the image. It reads, Serda Ogel, uh, Suda Ogel. Another sign far away in the background of the image 
read Zandora. Okay, I don't need to hold it up again. You guys can all imagine this in your minds. Oh, I'm sorry. If you're listening in a pod as a podcast, it's just exactly what I'm describing here. So you don't even really need to see it. Don't worry about it. It's just a cartoon. Which contradicts the second and most popular version of the events, according to which Boris was in fact in Andorra La Vale on the 20th or 21st of July. The Spanish police therefore had violated international law by performing an arrest in another country. This seems unlikely. Spanish newspaper El Mundo even pointed out that during his short tenure as king, Boris May never actually set foot in Andorra. Whatever the site of the arrest, on the 23rd of July, the now deposed King Boris was taken to Barcelona, then to Madrid, on a third-class train carriage. Of course, the aristocrat complained about that kind of treatment. Yeah, I don't know, like... (laughs) classes on trains i feel used to be a thing you still get classes on airplanes and in the uk they and i mean here as well they do have like first class and like standard or whatever but it's like it used to be like a separate compartment and all this stuff and nowadays it's like what even is it it's british people will understand this i guess maybe it's just southeastern trains or whatever like the ones that i used to go on still i mean it's been a long time with covid since i've been on a train in the uk but it would just be like it's just a, it's just in the same compartment it's the same seats i don't really understand what the difference is other than the seats are a different color there's not even a door separating it off so you have to hear all the plebeians in the regular economy class i'm one of those plebeians i don't think i've ever been first class on a train because it's twice as expensive and it's just as so i guess if it's rush hour you're more likely to get a seat but uh yeah i guess that's it i don't know but back in the day I bet first class was kind of like they'd be handing out cigars, there'd be like booze, there'd be big comfortable seats, and then in third class it'd be like, what is this? Yeah, it's just a, uh, it's just like a, a, like a box. You just have to sit in the box. There's nothing in there. There's no seats. There's some straw on the ground. There's maybe a cow in the corner, like being transported somewhere. Scotia F was briefly held at the Modelo prison in Madrid before going on trial. Boris vocally defended his dynastic claims, and he even announced that he could count on well-paid people ready to launch an armed incursion into his fantastic principality. Authorities could not le- could not be less bothered. Their official stance on the whole affair was that they did not give any importance to the persons of the detainee, nor to the events he announces. <laughs> But Skoshev's rambling statements attracted the attention of the general public and the press journalists from La Vanguardia interviewed his mistress, Florence Marmon, whose main concern was to clarify that she was not the Baron's secretary, as reported by other journalists. The trial dragged on until November of 1934. Ah, journalism. Bad journalism. It's just kind of like people just make assumptions. I've been the subject of, so far, (laughs) one uh, like not me personally but one of my channels it was like hacked by uh some like crypto scam or whatever and uh, i read this article about my channel getting hacked by this crypto scam in some like i don't know like online newspaper rag and uh they were like we reached out to top tens for comments we didn't receive a reply and it's like bro how quickly do you want me to reply to you one i didn't get an email it went to like some generic email and two it's like, just because I didn't reply to your email originally, it makes me look bad. Because you're like, didn't get a reply. Obviously, no interest in fixing this. It's like, bro, maybe I'm fixing this rather than responding to journalists' requests for comment. Maybe. Maybe. But it, And then I'm like, I don't know. It's just bullshit. But uh, yeah, sorry. That was a completely unnecessary rant. But yeah, just like being, yeah, it's the secretary. It's like, there's no facts backing that up. It's just nonsense. As soon as you're part of some journalistic thing, you're like, oh, it's all nonsense, isn't it? 
I mean, I guess most of it's not. But it really made me realize that it's all just like twisted words and weird stuff and don't trust anything. Great message there, Simon. Well done. The trial dragged on until November of 1934. In the end, the Spanish judiciary was not sure what to do with this guy. Sure, he had broken the law of vagabonds, but he had already served some time in jail. But could he be trusted with staying in the country? The easiest solution was to expel him. Boris himself asked to be exiled to Portugal, but on reaching the border, he was arrested again by the Portuguese this time for not having a passport. The Portuguese gave him a provisional passport and kicked him out of the country too. The <laughs> I guess you got, you got to do what you got to do. The former king had now truly become a vagabond with nowhere to go. He attempted to reach France, only to be expelled yet again. The last caper. If this was a feature film, this would be the moment when the credits rolled and the good old-fashioned caption reading, The End appeared on screen. It was now time for the newsreels to be projected. And the newsreels would show a distorted, monstrous image of what happens in Andorra. Elsewhere in Europe, in Berlin, Moscow, Rome, and other capitals, other men with the gift of the gab and a talent to seize the right occasion had already taken advantage of social turmoil to gain power on the back of their promises. Those men with sinister goals had already started laying their plans to take over the countries of their liking. 1934, 1935 would be the beginning of the slippery slope that would eventually drag a continent and then the entire world into catastrophe. If you're not getting it, that's World War II, by the way. Hitler, the rise of the Nazis. The Italian invasion, oh, and Italy, Mussolini, all of this stuff. It's World War II. It's complicated. It's big. Lots of people died. You know that one. The invasion of Abyssinia, the failure of the League of Nations, the Spanish Civil War, the Sudeten Crisis, the Nazi annexation of Austria, and so on, until the start of the most disastrous and uh, war ever experienced by mankind. Strangely enough, like all of these events, the failure of the League of Nations, the Spanish Civil War, the Sudeten Land Crisis, are all, when I was at school, part of my GCSE history, like one of the main parts of it, was the period between the wars. We didn't study World War One. we didn't study World War II, we, we studied like this period between the end of the First World War and the beginning of the Second World War, and I was like, that's a bit weird, but it's super fascinating. It's like a super interesting part of history. You think like, aren't the wars the interesting bit? It's like, no, nah. well, I mean, yes, but also the things that caused them, like, after, you know, the Treaty of Versailles, that failure, the League of Nations now had no power, all of that. I still remember that. And it was 20 years ago since I studied that. I may be wrong, but I consider the adventure of King Boris I of Andorra with all its plot holes and inconsistencies as the last moment of carefree levity, the last caper before night fell over Europe. And our friend Boris Skosriev would play a part in the dark times that followed. Between 1934 and 1939, his movements were unclear, although it appears that he traveled to Portugal, Morocco, Gibraltar, and France. In 1942, he settled in Germany. He first worked as a translator in a private company, but sometime in 1943, joined the German army. According to the newspaper El Mundo, he was, uh, Sonderfuhrer, or special officer, when the military, with the military police on the Eastern Front. And that would make him one of the many citizens from Soviet territories who would collaborate with Axis powers out of hatred against Bolshevism. Boris's assignment as a special officer was indeed special, as he was tasked to interrogate Red Army prisoners. In the latter months of World War II, Skostrev lived uh, through another remarkable adventure, although I would say with 99.99% degree of certainty that it happened only like this 
in his fantasies. According to declarations released in 1963, Boris infiltrated the Yalta Conference in February of 1945, disguised as a French officer. Eavesdropping on the conversations of the three greats, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin, he was able to retrieve useful intelligence about their plans. More precisely, that the Allies were planning to drop an atomic bomb on Berlin. He is absolutely making this up. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're a famous person who's known for lying. In March or April 1945, Skoshev secured a meeting with Adolf Hitler in his bunker under the German capital. No, he didn't. During the conversation, the former king convinced the Fuhrer that all was lost, and if Germany continued fighting, it would risk nuclear annihilation. It was thanks to Boris that Hitler, before committing suicide, would leave orders for an unconditional surrender to the Allies. <laughs> you know why you've never heard of this? Why you've never heard of some Bor guy called Boris? You know, largely being responsible for the end of World War II's hostilities. I mean, other than you know, bombs and invasion, uh, is because it didn't happen. That's why. After saving Berlin from a nuclear strike, Boris was arrested by U.S. troops in May 1945. He proved that he was not a German citizen and convinced the Americans that he was not a Nazi, securing his release. He then settled down in the Rhineland town of Babad for a quiet few years before making a big mistake. In 1948, he traveled to Eisenach in Thuringia then part of the Soviet-controlled sector of Germany. Following a check of his papers, Soviet troops identified him as a former special officer in charge of interrogations. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's like, hey, don't I know you from the war? Weren't you the guy who was interrogating people? And I feel like Nazi interrogation is like, it's not, you know, modern police interrogation. Where, you know, you sit down, they handcuff you, you have a lawyer. It's like, I imagine, that, I don't know, I'm just speculating. Maybe there was torture. <laughs> it was a very tight spot. If he was recognized as a former Russian national, he would have been executed on the spot as a traitor. It was better to go for the lesser of two evils, which in this case was to admit that yes, he was German despite the Russian-sounding name, and that yes, he had been a Nazi. Wow. When pretending that you were a Nazi, or like admitting you were a Nazi is the less bad option, you know that those are two bad options. The confession spared his life, but earned him an incarceration in a Siberian gulag, which is a fate I would not wish on my worst enemy. You need better enemies, Arnaldo. <laughs> the man who had once been king, possibly allegedly, languished in a hellish labor camp alongside POWs, political prisoners, and ordinary criminals. After eight years, the Soviet Union and West Germany negotiated the release of German prisoners, and Boris too, he returned home in 1956. With enough intrigue and adventure to fill some ten lives, the now 60-year-old settled again in Bapard and lived quietly until his death on the 27th of February, 1989. But that's not the end, because there's like two more pages here? Dismembered alternate timelines. It's been crossed out, and uh, we have alternate timelines instead, which is fun. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quietly working on an alternate history podcast. I don't think I've told anyone this, um, but it's a, it's a work in progress. It's going to be quite fun. It's the first, like, semi-fictional, not fictional, but, like, uh, it'll be, like, full of history and historical facts and stuff. We've done a pilot, and I really like it. So it's probably going to happen, and I'm quite excited about it. It's the most weird thing I've done so far. Um, I won't spoil any more details. Other, I didn't even really plan to announce this. So I've not thought about this at all, and it might not actually happen. But um, Alternate History Podcast could be coming which is uh, i'm pretty pretty excited about that especially after doing this this is more like this feels like i mean there's crimes and stuff this is a super nice breather from the usual horror of a casual criminalist but uh, this feels more like history than it does true crime um and it's made me quite excited for that that other project which i kind of forgot about over christmas i'm sure you're listening to this in like late january and like christmas what are you talking about simon ah one 
As I mentioned several times, accounts of the story of the King of Andorra tend to be inconsistent, but they all agree on one point. By the end of July 1934, he had been arrested. Several online sources, however, mainly originating from Russian-speaking outlets, report a completely different version of events, one according to which Boris Kosyrev remains in power until 1941. One of the sources I came across is the website allandora.com, owned by media company All Pyrenees. According to its director, Ms. Irina Rybolchenko, All Pyrenees is an international information media platform dedicated to Andorra, available in Catalan, English, French, and Russian languages. This website features a short essay by Pierre-Jean Thomas Seguero, honorary consul of the Russian Federation in the Principality of Andorra. Oh my god, that's a... <laughs> what's your job? Honorary Consul of the Russian Federation at the Principality of Andorra. That's a hell of a job title. Do you fit that on a business card? This essay recounts a brief history of Andorra, touching upon the story of Boris the way we just heard it. However, another page of the same website features what sounds like an alternate history version of the events. In this parallel universe, Boris I is still king when the civil war starts in Spain, offering support to the Republican side against Franco's nationalists. This causes criticism by British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who refers to Boris as, if not the agent of Moscow, then the agent of Republicans. In February of 1939, fleeing members of the Spanish Republican Army are allowed sanctuary in Andorra by Boris I, despite threats from Francisco Franco. The nationalist forces then enter Andorra with the goal of overthrowing Boris I, but are forced to leave thanks to Franco's intervention. In June the following year, France is occupied by the Nazis. The puppet regime installed in Vichy is suspicious of Andorra, anticipated to become a base for de Gaulle's free French soldiers and resistance fighters. So, in autumn of 1941, Vichy and Franco of Spain dispatch a team of secret agents to arrest Boris I. This is... <laughs> I mean, we are deep in fantasy land, aren't we? The king is then interred in a concentration camp in Levenet, southwestern France, where he would die in 1944. If you're familiar with the story of the man from Tourette, I actually made a video about that on a channel which wasn't very popular, so I don't make it anymore. <laughs> I should make that video again on, like, I don't know. It's such a good story that just channel didn't do very well, so I kind of killed it. It was called Explored, spelled X-P-L-R-D. And, uh, yeah, just, I think nowadays on, like, podcasts or youtube you really need to have a theme and like general channels unless they're well established just don't really work that well anymore um that channel did not work very well anymore and so i stopped doing it because i just kept throwing money in a hole <laughs> ah. uh and if you're not familiar how about you go check out the video on this topic on my channel explored yeah well, there we go. Well, thanks for the plug, Arnaldo. <laughs> all, all the plugs didn't do it much good in the end. They did it. Two. Uh, two of the sources I consulted mentioned a curious detail about Boris's adventure. Before he attempted his Andorran takeover, another man had tried to bribe the general council. This was an unidentified citizen from Chicago who had offered $100,000, more than $2 million in today's money, to obtain the crown of Andorra. In exchange, he would have turned the co-principality into a gambling paradise. I may be biased against Chicago residents with a love of gambling, but I immediately pictured some 1930s gangster installing himself as King of the Valley. And that would make for a very interesting alternate reality, one in which the Italo-American Mafia had taken control of their own independent rogue state slap-bang in Western Europe. Another story which, if treated with the right amount of whimsy, symmetry, and mustard-colored backgrounds, would be right up the alley of Mr. Wes Anderson. I'd, I'd watch the shit out of that West Wes Anderson movie. This has been another episode of The Casual Criminalist, uh, allegedly a true crime show, although this felt more like history. But, oh my god, a nice breather. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you didn't skip over it. Although, of course you didn't. If you're right at the end here, all the people who skipped over it are no longer here. They're like, I'm coming back next week where someone's getting their face cut off. <laughs> oh my god, no! 
So what we do here, uh, if you enjoy this show, please do consider leaving it a review wherever you get your podcasts or if you're watching it on YouTube. Hi, please click the like button. Uh, It's cliche, I know, but it does help. And uh, subscribe. Why not? And I'll see you next time.